and welcome to another episode of Health Shift, my podcast that bridges the gap between conventional modalities and ancient healing. More than ever, we need complete mind, body, and spirit well-being, and the knowledge that we cannot separate these aspects of self. I'm here to raise awareness, assist in our becoming more conscious and responsible for our choices. And please note that these discussions are not medical advice and nor should they be used in place of medical assessment and treatment. So today I'd like to welcome Dr. Julia Amira. Dr. Myra is a consultant in the emerging field of psychedelic medicine, serving as a bridge between Eastern and Western practices. Boy, can I relate to that one? Committed to merging the two in order to create a new paradigm for integrative health and wellness. She was on the road to a career in pediatrics, but seeing the pitfalls of the current healthcare system, decided to shift gears and explore transformative medicine where she has found her calling in advocacy and education. I am so excited to have you here today. So welcome, Dr. Myra. Thank you. Thank you, Julie. Thank you for having me on. Yes, yes. You know, in my many interviews with people, I always like to begin with where they started and how the path has often been changed by our own experiences, hardships, traumas, et cetera. Oftentimes there's a common thread. So, you know, I would love to hear more about your story in terms of how it's adjusted your trajectory. Happy to share that. Yeah, never, um, would have never in a million years thought I'd be where I am today. Um, definitely, definitely not. So my story was, you know, started age seven. I want to be a doctor. I saw my father as a doctor. I was like, I want to help people. This is, you know, I lived in America. So this is how you help people. You become a doctor. And imagine my surprise when I get my medical degree, I start my residency and I'm suddenly in the system there to help people realizing that we are really lacking a lot in preventative care in like basic, simple things that I thought were part of uh, being a doctor. And so to me, you know, kind of head down, I was there for a year, first year, you know, you're working 80 hour a week, you're not even able to think about yourself, let alone uh, think about your life choices. And then, you know, the second year rolls around and I started to notice certain things that I couldn't unsee. One of them, like I mentioned, the, you know, how we're treating patients, you know, there's no lacking preventative care, but then also the, the way we work to each other, the kind of doggy dog, you know, everyone is competing and there wasn't this camaraderie in the programs that I had, you know, always thought that there would be because we're going through such intense things together. And so for me, it was like twofold. I was not really buying what I was selling. And then the context in which this was happening was so devastating for someone who values connection so much. Um, so to me, I kind of, you know, looked around and, and I realized that if I, like, I'm, if I stay here, I'm not going to be okay. And there was a lot of this inner dialogue of, you know, how will I disappoint my patients by leaving, my program by leading, my colleagues by leaving, my parents by leaving. Sure. And there was this pivotal moment when all of a sudden some voice, you know, the voice in my head changes the question to, how are you disappointing yourself by staying? Mm. And there was this like very loud, in every freaking way, Julia. <laughs> and from that point on, the decision was no longer a logical one. It was not a mind that decided that I need to walk away from a career I've spent over 20 years moving towards. Um, it was really this innate knowing that this isn't right. Um, we're, 
you know, we're using tools that aren't working and we're missing half of a toolbox. And I had no idea what anything else was because since age seven, I've been, you know, dogmatically kind of programmed and told, you know, this is what medicine is. Here's all the medications you need to know, you know, here are the conditions that we treat in this kind of way. And then when there, when we would be stumped, there would be like this kind of, you know, oh, I guess we don't know. No, the, after I resigned, I started looking into all these alternative healing paths. Anything that resonated with me, I would start to explore further. Ayurvedic medicine, movement, nutrition, um, the importance of sleep, the effect of stress on the body. I remember I read The Body Keeps the Score and I said, how is oh, this not mandatory reading? Love that book. Yes. It's an incredible, it, and it explains so much. Um, and, you know, kind of with, equipped with this awareness now of like, wait a second, these are all the things that we were told medicine is not science. It's not valid. It's woo woo. It's like, wait a second, there's pieces to pull from each of these modalities. And if you work it with the Western medicine model, like there's actually an opportunity to go beyond the treatment of symptoms, but really getting to the root cause Mm -hmm. and then offering preventative care that doesn't even include medication or anything like that. It's, you know, the form of what are you eating? Who are you around? Like all of these things. And so for me, kind of when I, in the process of all of this, I also very accidentally discovered the unbelievable healing potential of psychedelics. I, um, you know, in full disclosure, I tried it and I tried psilocybin. Mm -hmm. And for me, that was such an eye-opening experience because I had that experience through a medical lens and through that medical lens, I was like, wait a second, there's, this, this is not a drug. This is medicine. Yeah. And like, for me, that became so fascinating because I'm like, wait a second, start going online. I'm like, there's so much information out there on this. There's, there's actually studies going on around about this. And from, and this was sometime like late in 2018, mm-hmm. um, that I really dove all in. And I was like, wait a second, there's really something here. Um, I had joked that I left medicine to pursue a life of healing and (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Um, And then this kind of, you know, I started really following the clues. I would start to, you know, how did I go from where I was to where I am? Um, A big part was COVID. COVID, everybody was on a webinar. Everyone was also on their computer. So any webinar that I attended, conference I attended, I would reach out to anyone that I resonated with and started to ask the subject matter experts, you know, what, where is the space going? Like, where is the psychedelic medicine going? What does it need? What are the pitfalls? How can I help? And over the last couple of years, really, I started getting involved in a lot more uh, psychedelic pro- projects. I am involved in ketamine clinics as a director of strategy. Mm-hmm. which, you know, I found an unbelievable team that really understands the importance of preparation, integration, and sees ketamine as just a small part. Oh, amen, um, amen. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. um, and, and talk about, you know, the, the team, the complete opposite of what I experienced in my entire medical training is what I experienced with this team. So to me, that also carries a lot of weight. Um, the other things I got involved in is some policy work here locally in Florida, mm-hmm. uh, trying to get some uh, psilocybin reform or psychedelic research. 
also nationally for an organization, Psychedelic Medicine Coalition, which is lobbying the National Institute of Health for a $100 million grant to study psychedelics. Mm -hmm. And then one of the coolest things that I've had the privilege of being a part of is actual psychedelic research where I get to sit above ground, um, meaning, you know, not in the underground, but like in a clinical setting Uh um, with patients that are getting a dose of either psilocybin or placebo uh, spoiler alert, it might be a little tough to double blind a uh, three and a half gram mushroom experience. Uh-huh, uh-huh. But that has been pretty incredible to be able to watch people in this landmark study. Um, so it's been a complete, completely unexpected and extremely welcomed journey to where I am today. Oh my God, I absolutely love this. And one of the things that um, is also really near and dear to my heart, and every time I do post about um, microdosing, psychedelics, whatever, is that, you know, I'm coming from that medical lens as well. This is about, this is about safety. This is about intention. This is about um, really true healing and not just going out for a, a rager. Um, and I'm, I'm a, a real newbie to this world. I didn't do any of that stuff back in the day because I was too afraid. You know, I lived a pretty mm-hmm. sheltered life as an only child. And it was my own cancer journey that really brought me to starting to look at some of these medicines and what their healing potentials are. So I absolutely love this. So tell us about your, um, your work with clients. You mentioned that you're in some of the ketamine clinics and, and you're also director of strategy. So tell me, tell me a little bit about that work. Yeah. So as the director of strat, since I'm not a practicing physician, I'm not in, you know, I'm not actually seeing the patients, but my role is to kind of understand what is the patient's experience and how can we maximize the effect of the dosing that they're getting. Mm. And so one of the biggest focuses that we, like one of the biggest shifts we recently made is, um, and, and I'll go back a little bit to how I came to this. We were talking about microdosing. Um, for me and my experience with it, I became very fascinated with how low of a dose can you use and still get a desired effect. And for me, what that was is the preparation. Like, what is the intention that you're bringing to the even tiny dose? Mm -hmm. What is it that you want to get done? And then one, you have this little accountability buddy almost kind of helping you get that done. But then afterwards, what are the new tools that you discover during the active phase of the medicine that you're going to take with you moving forward? What are the things that came to mind that you're going to implement moving forward? Because that's really, you know, where the cool part is. It's like, now you figured out why you do things. Now you get choices to how to do them differently. So anyway, that was really cool to me. And I saw it's like really prep and integration. So at Nushama, we went even further to say, hold on, we know how important integration is. But if a person is not prepared to know that they're going to have to do something with this temporary relief from their symptoms, mm-hmm. then it's going to be a lot harder to reel someone in. You know, you got somebody that's feeling amazing for the first time. Try to tell them to go journal, <laughs> you know, try right. to tell them to do something outside of all the million things that they want to do that they haven't wanted to do for so long. Sure. Um, and I'm sure that you are fully, you know, on board with this too, where it's like, well, if you're not doing things, if you're not creating new habits, it's going to be a temporary relief. Sure. Um, So what we are really interested in is like, how can we best prepare each person that contacts us? And if they go through our program, we know no matter where they go, they're equipped with enough information to make better decisions. 
Um, maybe they decide to go somewhere, you know, it's a home model. They no longer want to go to the clinic. If we know that they told, we told them everything about, um, you know, how to set an intention, like what media to avoid the day before, a couple of days after, if we let them know that there's addictive potential for ketamine, if it's misused, you know, to have them watch out for those kind of drops that might happen when the medication starts to wear off, then we at least know we've equipped them enough that they can go into their communities, they can go to other places, and they're going to be better off, set up for more success than just if we say, hey, you're going to get a dose, and then we can talk about integration later. Sure. Um, sure. So that's that part. With respect to patient, the experience with the patients, that's really what I do in the clinical research. And the study that we just completed, it was USONA's phase two uh, use of psilocybin for major depression. And in this, again, the preparation is a big component of it. So we do about five hours of a session. It's me and my colleague. He's a uh, CIIS and MAPS trained psychiatrist. Mm, nice. And okay. I mean, and what a beautiful soul and very, um, very interested in the spiritual component of all of these experiences. Mm -hmm. And so not your typical doctor. Um, and so we get to hear this person's life story. And when do you ever get to really sit and for five hours share, you know, like that sometimes in and of itself can be so profound because you may have not thought in the same time block about the things from childhood and your last failed relationship. Yep. And then in the process that you're talking about it, you can actually kind of start making those connections. Yeah. Yeah. And those aha moments before any medicine is involved to me, I think is like one of the most beautiful things. You can ask the right question or just say the right thing to the right person at the right time and shift their trajectory. And to me, that's like such, such a gift. Um, and then, so we have this on a Friday on Monday, they come in for a dose day and the dose day they're there for seven hours. Um, they get a dose it's placebo or uh, psilocybin and then they get their headphones and their blindfolds and there would be times when we wouldn't have any clue of what was going on for like hours because the people will just like stay there they'll lay there and it would be quiet and then all of a sudden they sit up and they're like the floor is moving <laughs> so we're like okay um and so a lot of times it's pretty quiet experience um there's either not a lot of movement some people have like a little bit of discomfort and here it's interesting because for people who have done psychedelics who are listening, um, particularly mushrooms, there comes this point around hour three when if there's gonna be any kind of re reaction, it's um, usually emotional, but that's usually when it comes up and it's like when the tears come up or uh, the heavier stuff. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's been cool to observe this time and time again in the clinical setting mm. because I, saw, I experienced this with myself and I noticed that there's this, um, it's almost like the first couple of hours you're getting this show and then hour three, it's like, okay, now you're ready to dig in and see what, <laughs> what was underneath. And all, those, all those kaleidoscope colors go away. You're right, right, right. It's like, or they start like, you know, giving you images and you're like, huh, that person. Yeah, I guess, I guess we haven't talked mm. in a while. Um, so and like, that's been really cool. And then we have the following day, we, we, we have two hour call with them, both my colleague and I, and then we do that two more times over the next um, two weeks. And 
again, the most amazing parts are watching the people kind of take the reins and start as, like as they're telling us things, their increased um, not sometimes it's an increased vulnerability, but there's this increased honesty with themselves. So people will start sharing something and being like, and then I realized that I'm selfish. How funny is that? Like, apparently I'm selfish. Of course, people are going to treat me this way because I'm out here saying I'm not selfish, but yes, I am. And there's like this playful awareness of your patterns and it be, and it's play. It beca- yeah. You know, we always talk about doing the inner work, but there's like inner play that can, you know, it can also be framed that way. Um, and so that's been cool. And the most rewarding thing was hearing one of our patients who, I mean, when we started, there would be tears in just talking about her, like even just the day-to-day things. And a year later I heard from her and I could hear the smile on the phone. Oh, that's beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And especially because we don't see as many women in clinical research. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of reasons for this. You know, we could be four different women every month. That's right. Um, yep. So it doesn't really help with the, the data, you know, accounting for variables. But we've been really lucky that most of our participants that at least through our site were women. Mm-hmm. And that's very exciting. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I absolutely love it. You know, an area that I'm really passionate about having a functional medicine, integrative medicine background is bringing into the preparation, cleaning up. I call it the ADLs because I used to do some nursing home consulting many years ago. But the activities of daily living, your diet, your sleep hygiene, your fitness, your meditation and stress management, that if people start preparing themselves before the journey by cleaning up their act and journaling and really going back and writing their life story, oh my God, what a profound impact that can have. And I have read some research that actually, you know, having cleaner lifestyle will support the longer, you know, longer activity of the medicine, you know, working. So that's an area that I'm really excited about helping to develop in a clinical setting. Yeah. So it's interesting that you bring this up because I was speaking to one of the girls. So we're doing some psychedelic uh, education events here in Florida. And one of the girls had mentioned um, the possibility that a, a dirty diet can actually bl- block the effectiveness of some psychic, at least like from anecdotally, because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm not sure where the data is on that. Um, and it makes sense with ayahuasca, you know, they do the, the dieta where you're the on a certain, sure. um, and then time and time again, people will say, I didn't listen. And then I ended up with such a bad trip. I was throwing up the whole, like, you know, it's like that. Sure. Um, and we don't do the same thing when we're looking, I mean, for people with psilocybin, they don't kind of hold it with that same kind of ceremonial mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. container. Um, and I think that there's a lot of value in that. Another thing someone was saying, you know, the um, calcification with fluoride mm-hmm. and the effect that that might have on your visions and your ability to have like a, um, have a certain kind quality of a psychedelic experience. And I was like, that's a very interesting conversation to start having um and I completely agree with you that it would be amazing if in the future the psychedelics maybe they're medical or you know they're available more freely but they're available to the people that are showing that they're willing to do something coming in it doesn't even necessarily have to be something huge and life-changing and difficult um 
But even coming to an experience with an answer to the question that I love to ask people, what does better look like? Mm -hmm. Because if you don't know what better looks like, you may miss it when it's there. You may miss the subtle signs that it's coming um, that would keep you kind of motivated to keep going. And this is like a really big thing, I think, because with therapy nowadays, SSRIs, you're not coming in really having these conversations. It's like, I feel like this, I need something, doctor, here's something. Mm -hmm. And then that's kind of like the superficial conversation that's had. But you'd be surprised how many times I ask people like, what would you like, if you were better, what things like, what would you do differently? What are the things that you would start doing? And it takes them a second and it's almost like a little bit uncomfortable because that's not a, that's like not a common question. And it's extremely valuable because um, I'll give an example, like another personal uh, example with me. And I know that one of the topics that we want to discuss is SSRIs Mm -hmm. and psychedelics. So this is kind of merging into that. Um, When, when I resigned, one of the big uh, red flags to me before I resigned was I had started with an amazing therapist uh, about eight months prior. And she told me, I'm so sorry that you're having a hard time. I know residency is really tough. I don't think you'll need medication beyond these next two years. So let's just start you on this one thing. And then, you know, we'll just, you know, take it from there. And then imagine my surprise when the same woman is telling me, I want to add a mood stabilizer and increase your dose. And when she told me this, I said, I promise you, I'll call you in a week, but I think there's something else going on here and I need to address that. And that's when I decided to resign. It was that week. Mm -hmm. And, and I'm eternally grateful to her because of how she started our relation, like our, um, our therapy sessions and that it was that obvious to me that something else was going on. And even this person that is holistic in their approach, the, the general way to approach this is you increase the, med- like that is the standard of care. It's, it's the only, it's all they have in their toolbox. Yeah. Right. Right. And even when they have more things in their toolbox at the end of the day, it depends on your relationship with the therapist because they might not be willing to take on the liability of, you know, saying, let's wait it out. Let's try to do other things. Sure. Because on paper, the liability is on them when they didn't prescribe X medication per protocol for, you know, Y uh, symptom. And that sucks because doctors feel trapped by the way that things are like they're, the art of medicine is really not there as much. Mm-hmm. And so anyway, when I resigned as everybody in a, you know, crisis, um, can kind of relate you're on the upswing, you know, maybe it's like a little bit of a manic thing. You know, for me, it was like, I left my career and I'm so empowered. And she, I ended up taping, tapering myself off of all my antidepressants. And cause I thought I was like, Oh, I'm a doctor. I know these things, but cautionary tale. Oh my God. Um, caution, caution, caution. <laughs> yeah. Don't do that. Definitely speak to your doctor. If you're thinking about, you know, lowering your medication because sure. You know, it could take time and um, it's also better to have some support. And so after I, you know, some of my field research, 
I called her again because I started noticing certain things that I didn't want to think a certain way when I woke up. I didn't want to feel certain things. I didn't want to act in certain ways. And I called her and she told me, she was like, okay, you know, I think you're having a little bit of like these, you know, ups and downs. So let me put you on a mood stabilizer. And I was like, no. And then I was like, okay, fine. Like I actually had, a, you know, someone that knows me say, hey, you've been trying to kind of get out of this on your own and you're having a hard time. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's some value to this. And so I said, okay. And the way that it usually works is someone starts you on a low dose and you tape and you gradually increase and increase until you get to the standard of care mm-hmm. is usually around like 200 milligrams for this particular medicine. Um, I now have tried psychedelics. I've connected to what like normal feels like inside. I know that I'm not there right now. And I've already explored a lot with, you know, intention setting and all all of that when, with the psychedelics, imagine my surprise when this psychiatric medication works overnight. This is a medication that's supposed to, you know, three weeks until you see an effect, gradually increasing the dose. It worked overnight. And I was like, hold on a sec. This is not how psychotropic medications work, but this is a thousand percent how the placebo works. And I'm going to lean into this. And because, okay, like if it worked, who cares how? Right. So three weeks later, I had a call with her and I'm like, look, it's still working at this low 25 milligram dose. I was like, can I just stay here? And she said, absolutely. We'll keep monitoring you and we'll move forward. And what I started to think about in my head was my experience. Um, And the way that I explain this, and I know that we're on a video, um, here, but on audio on the podcast, um, essentially like, you know, if you know what normal feels like, like this is where you would be. So this is normal and something happens, you have a loss, you have, you know, I don't know, a bender or, you know, break up something and your chemical imbalance might drop a little bit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you'll be a little bit lower and you go to your doctor and they start you on medication. If you don't know what better feels like, which is like here, Mm -hmm. um, if you don't know what normal feels like, then when you're put on medication, you might miss when you've had enough, you know, for me over, you know, I, I felt, okay, I'm here. I'm good. Now they put you on 25 milligrams. If you knew what normal felt like, if you knew what better would look like, you might be able to say, okay, I want to stop. But what usually happens is they continue to increase your doses and you end up at 175 milligrams extra Mm -hmm. than what you needed. So what does that do? Maybe it continues to help your symptoms. Okay. But a lot of times it leads to increased need for other medications because now you've gone too far Sure. and now you need to balance that. And then the other thing that can happen, which is what we really need to start talking about in like for everyone on any kind of SSRIs or SNRIs is if you only needed 25 milligrams, but you missed that sign that it was enough, and now you're on 175 extra milligrams for a year, five years, some people are on medication for 10 years, that's 175 milligrams worth of potential side effects and withdrawal symptoms when you try to stop. Yeah, yeah, very true. And you have to do a slow taper for sure. Exactly. And you know, I was lucky because even though I did my taper kind of haphazardly, I was only on medication for about a year for people who've been on these medications for a long time. I mean, you could have lost a loved one and had a really hard time coping with this. And you started an SSRI. Now it's been three years and you're like, okay, I think I can start to go back to myself. 
and you start to lower your medication and you're suicidal for the first time in your life. Mm-hmm. What happens? You get scared. Your doctor gets scared. You're back on the medication. And I, so many people I hear tell me the last time I tried to stop, it was so bad that I'd rather just stay on this low dose forever. And that to me is, you know, it, if there was a way, she's so cute. Um, if there was a way to support people, you know, maybe it's that first three to six weeks of your taper. Maybe it's when you're finally done, you know, with that last part of the taper and then you completely remove the medication and then it's hard. We, we owe it to patients to have some kind of a framework for support for that. We need to tell them that this is normal, that this is very unpleasant, but not going to be here for long-term and obviously monitor for those patients that are having a hard time. You know, it, there are so many people that try to completely get off of their medic, their SSRIs. And I think the future of microdosing psilocybin in particular is going to help people with their taper. Mm-hmm. And I think that the, and it's going to be a really big benefit and it's going to hopefully not lead to people thinking that they need the microdosing every day um, because that's not the goal. And even there was a group that I, um, it was microdosing movement. It was a six week thing online, this whole community. And they gave a lot of information and they said that people who microdose more frequently early in their kind of journey they tend to need it a lot less often moving forward. So it's like almost um, setting yourself up with all the tools. You kind of learn these new habits. You know, I, sometimes people do it for three to, you know, three to four weeks of a microdosing regimen, and then they have a lot of tools to work with and kind of, you know, again, turning it into play. Um, and yeah, so that's kind of, I think, where we're going to see the future benefits, especially of these low doses of um, psychedelics for, for people on antidepressants. Yeah. Yeah. I, I so agree. Um, I think, you know, another piece that's really important is that we've been uh, indoctrinated into thinking you take a pill, it cures the ill and you don't have to take any self-responsibility. So, Mm -hmm. you know, part of it is also us educating people that yes, you do need to put in some effort and you need to kind of look at these ADLs, the activities of daily living, Um, And the nice thing is that there's some great research about psilocybin really helping to support people wanting to eat better, not drink Mm -hmm. alcohol, not take, you know, not really do self-destructive activities. So I think part of it is preparing and doing some of that work, but then also recognizing that the microdosing may help them to continue to do that. And then not necessarily looking at it forever. I always tell everybody everything, even when it comes to meds. I had a guy that just texted me the other day that, um, has Crohn's disease and the doctor wants to start him on a, you know, a very strong medication. He goes, Oh my God, what should I do? And I said, well, I I can't say anything until we meet. And I said, you know, being on a medication doesn't mean forever. So it's the same thing. This is, this is really wonderful. You know, one of the things that I'm really excited about in terms of women's health is again, the potential of using microdosing in, in place of SSRIs because of the blunting of emotions, you know, yes, if you're, if you're really, you know, ready to jump off the ledge, my daughter and I oftentimes joke and say, you know, we talk to each other when we're ready to jump off the ledge. (laughs) Um, So sometimes an SSRI is necessary in a crisis time, Mm -hmm. Um, but it blunts joy, it blunts passion. And those are things that women are experiencing as they're starting to go through menopause. 
And the biggie is that it really blunts libido. And, you know, a woman that's already feeling dry, shriveled up and awful, you know, that's another side effect of an SSRI that psilocybin, you know, microdosing may mitigate. So I'd love to hear your, your thoughts on that. Yes. Um, that was a big, you know, I, the first time I was put on any SSRI, I was like 16, I think. And I remembered more recently the feelings that I had and it was, and I remember saying as a kid, I feel like I lost my gut instinct. Mm. So at 16, like I, like, I guess there was some kind of like a severing of that, like ability to kind of know what to be drawn to, or, um, just, just like what road to take even, you know, like those things. So that's a really big thing. And with SSRIs, like you said, you're blunting the experience. Like what better way to make someone feel even worse than to also make them not want to have sex? Like, you know, like that's the last thing that we need. Um, and with like the, and it, it's so, it's so unfortunate that we don't think about these things. A lot of times in medicine, it's like dismissed. Um, like it's like, oh, and there's going to be some like loss of libido. We, I think as a culture, we forget how important sex is mm-hmm. and how much, um, and how much is lost if we kind of lose that part of ourselves, because that's where creativity comes from too. Mm-hmm. So for psilocybin, like that may have an opposite effect. It kind of, it's actually interesting. I don't know, um, if it, you know, if I'll describe it well, but there's the idea of like the Kundalini awakening and it's like going through all of the chakras and unlocking. And one of the things that people feel is that initial root chakra activation, which can feel like horniness. Mm-hmm. Um, but that is something that like, it's a real time effect and it can be really kind of, it could be a really great way to get back into your body. I think that the SSRIs also disconnect us from our bodies in a way that makes it much more difficult to have, like to experience those feelings, to experience the emotions, to let them move, move through us. Um, the psilocybin on the other hand, will definitely bring that up. It sure. will, it, it can very well kind of unveil what's under the surface and make those feelings sadder, but mm-hmm. also sh- make you able to show yourself compassion for having those feelings and allowing them to move through you. And then having this kind of inner dialogue, which is a little bit more honest, a little bit more creative and a little bit more compassionate and having this inner dialogue of like, what is it that I'm really feeling? Yeah. Like yeah. what, like, okay, I'm sad. What am I really sad about? Oh, because I don't have this. Is that it? Or is this triggering something deeper? Mm-hmm. And like, that's why I really also like the microdosing. Um, the macrodose is great. You know, you can have this high dose, you have a very profound experience. You have these insights, you have this afterglow afterwards, you can really bring this into your day-to-day life, but what a gift it is to observe your own thoughts within your day-to-day activities. Like, cause change happens like 1% changes lead to a massive shift. And if you can, you know, catch yourself in like a little neuroses throughout the day or, you know, for people with either caffeine or food addiction, you know, 
when you go for that snack, personal experience, obviously, um, it's like you go for that snack and then there's this voice that says, are you actually hungry or are you trying to mask something that you don't want to feel? It's like, well, now that you put it that way, I can't like say no. (laughs) Maybe I'll have a carrot. (laughs) If I'm really hungry, I just need the nutrients. All right, fine. (laughs) Sure, sure. I call it the outside observer. So I frequently am telling my clients, just be the non-judgmental outside observer. So it sounds like that with the microdosing experience, it supports really being that outside observer a little bit more easily because sometimes mm-hmm. people have a really hard time, you know, slowing down enough to be that outside observer, but that's what we need to do. Um, this is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I love, I absolutely love it. So what three tips do you have to offer people in this confusing healthcare world between conventional and psychedelic medicine? Well, the first thing is that we cannot demonize the Western medicine completely. Like, you know, and I did that. I did the whole pendulum swing, you know, of course. (laughs) Um, But the sweet spot is in the middle. It's the combination of all the tools that we have without judging one is better than the other. There are people whose lives were saved with SSRIs. Mm -hmm. That is just a fact. Sure. Um, it does help 30% of people. That's not a great number, but maybe for those people, psychedelics would not have been a good option. And this actually does help them. Like, so one big thing is not to demonize it because actually the other parts of the Western model, the psychiatric help, even the mental health counselors and all of that, like these are still kind of within that model. The, and there's benefit to that. Like it's really the therapy. A lot of times that's making the impact. The medicine is just facilitating the kind of transfer of information. When you lower your defenses, you are more receptive to new things. Yep. It's like what you were saying before, you know, if you, um, like the psychedelic can just make you more willing to journal or more interested in the yoga, you know, or more able to be present with nature outside for long enough to actually be affected by it. You know, so those are the kind of things. So that's one um, that, you know, the long-winded answer is, you know, bring all those things together. It's like we, in collaboration is where we're going to see the most benefit, um, collaboration of Eastern and Western practices. The other thing is the intention matters so much. Yes. Amen. So, <laughs> and the mushrooms are an intelligent species. Like they, they want to help you. They also know what is going to be best for you. Um, so it's important that you bring the right intention. Um, and if you, you know, like one personal experience is I was starting to feel less productive it was like a few months ago, actually. And it's like, oh, I know things and I, and I like do my practice and then I'm still feeling, you know, a little bit burnt out. And so I thought, oh, maybe I'll microdose to be more productive. Um, the mushrooms don't like when you do that. <laughs> They're not here to help you do more. They're here to help you be better. It's kind of the Silicon um, Valley model. <laughs> Yeah. And what's yeah. funny is, so I, I tried it, even though I knew better. And my intention was to do more. Well, what would happen? I would get very emotional. I'd want to go outside. Productivity did not improve. Um, about four weeks later, I was like, hold on. Like, it's really starting to get, like, really starting to bother me. And I'm like, you know, my little, like, bubbliness isn't there. And I'm not taking personal phone calls, which to me, it's like, I love people so much. Like, so the fact that I don't have the energy for that. And so I was like, you know what? I want to be more present and playful. Like that's my favorite intention to go into this because no matter what, like being present is good. And then being playful makes anything a little bit more light. And 
within two days, my productivity is back. And I left on day because I, for me, it's like every other day, do it for about a week. Um, and I laughed because I was like, man, the mushrooms like got mad at me for using them for productivity. And they conspired with my brain and decided, let's give her a real reason to use us so that she remembers what we're here for. Yep. Um, so that was just like a very, I guess, a needed reminder of the intention being important and also making sure that the intention is about something deeper than just the superficial stuff that you're working on because the superficial, like the, the external stuff will fall into place if you address those key things that are really asking to be addressed. And, you know, the symptoms are not bad. They are your soul trying to communicate with you. Mm, that's a beautiful and, way of putting it. Yeah. And that I think will be like the third thing that I tell people. It's like, the Western model is here's a problem. Let's get rid of that problem. And they think that the symptom is that problem. No, the symptom is a message. It is an alert. It is something that you're not listening to. So maybe it starts with a negative thought. Maybe it starts with sadness, depression, anxiety, whatever it is. If we don't listen, or let's say we take a medication, we mask the anxiety, guess what? It's going to come up as depression. Mm -hmm. We start to address the depression. It starts coming out as OCD. And if you keep doing this and you keep ignoring the messages, eventually your body starts to talk. Yes. And I think for us, we tend to be more like quicker to address the physical. We think that the mental will just go away or whatever it is, but it's, they are asking for your attention. And the sooner you do that, the quicker I think you can move through these things. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. Beautiful words of wisdom. So how can people connect with you, Julia? So I'm, I'm on social media. I'm on Instagram. My handle there is reflective underscore mirror, but it's spelled like my last name, M-I-R-E-R. Okay. Love um, it. <laughs> <laughs> so being Dr. Mirror in yeah. psychedelic medicine has been a riot for me internally because I'm like, oh, we're just mirrors to each other. And then you have all the mirror neurons and I'm like, I have a bunch of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so there's that. And then I'm on LinkedIn. Um, I always love to hear from people. So it's just, you know, my, my name, you could search it. Um, always happy to chat with people, especially people looking to get into this space. Uh, one of the favorite, my favorite things is to really talk to connect the right people with the right projects yes. and kind of set people up to explore this in their own professional capacity. And um, yeah, so, so those I'm pretty quick to answer to all of those. Wonderful, wonderful. Thank you for being available. I think that's a really important thing. And if you like this podcast, please rate, review, and share it with your friends, your family, your coworkers. I'm on a mission to change the current paradigm of healthcare and mental health care, and I cannot do it alone. <laughs> and you can find me at juliefreeman.net and on Instagram at Julie Freeman Mindful Wellness. Until next time. 